like they might be with the Fletchers today. So I don't know. I, I often look at our children's ministry and all of those that uh, work with them, and I think, man, I would have wished I was a kid and got to be with all these great people that we have working with our children. All right, so we, I think I know too many of the name. I don't want to even try, but I thank you all for um, all of you that work with our little ones. All right, a view from the wall, lessons on working together from Nehemiah. Is Bobby here today? No. Oh, is he? Okay. Bobby might know the story already. It's the summer of 1904 and the World Fair. <laughs> no, not because it's 1904. Not because it's 1904. I should have thought that through. Um, because of what happens at the World's Fair, okay? All right, so the World's Fair is in St. Louis. It was hot, really hot. People were searching for something, to, some way to cool off. And there's this buzz around the World Fair, right? Go find this vendor named Arnold, and he has just what you're looking for. He has something that he calls ice cream. That's why Bobby knows the story. All right. So, um, and the mile was insane. The, the, the line was insanely long. It seemed like miles long. People waited forever to get this ice cream that they heard about. But Arnold had a problem. He wasn't prepared for the huge rush on his ice cream, so he ran out of paper bowls to serve the ice cream in. Okay. Right next to him was another vendor named Ernest. Ernest was the pastry chef, and he was making a Persian wafer dessert. Ernest also had a problem, but his problem was way different. Nobody was buying his thing. Everybody was buying the ice cream. But Ernest saw that Arnold's problem was he was running out of paper bowls. Being smart, he figured out he could shape his wafer dessert, and he took it over to Arnold and said, Look, I can help you out. You can help me out. You can put your ice cream in this, and we can keep selling. And hence, the ice cream cone was invented, right? Ice cream and cone, better together, right? So that's, stage, that's the stage for a two-part series on working together. And then more specifically, as we get along, intergenerational ministry, all right? So the first part today, we're going to learn some lessons from Nehemiah. But since we're not really going to, we're not going to make our way through the whole book of Nehemiah, I want to start with some background. All right, so here's the background. So the Jewish people had been captive in Babylon for 70 years. Then in 530 B.C., Persia took, broke the armies of Babylon, and they released the Jewish remnant, encouraged them to return to Jerusalem. So at that time, something like 50,000 Israelites made their way back to, to um, Israel, and they attempted to immediately reconstruct the, the temple. But there was a lot of opposition, and they kind of abandoned their task when only the foundation had been built, right? So they didn't get that far, and they quit. A few years later, so the prophets Haggai and Zechariah came onto the scene and encouraged them to continue to build the temple, in which they did. Um, it was about 20 years after they returned that that happened, all right? Sixty more years passed, and Ezra is in the leadership role of the remnant that's in Jerusalem. And although the temple had been rebuilt, the walls and the gates were still destroyed. So for about 90 years after their first Jews returned, the people of God lived in a city with no walls and gates. And that's a kind of a shameful thing at that time, right? Real cities, powerful cities had walls and gates. So at that point, it was just what they were used to. It was normal. It was just the way things were going to be. Or was it? It was until Nehemiah showed up. All right, so this is where we 
come to the book of Nehemiah. And the first part of Nehemiah has some fairly obvious things. But unfortunately, we usually need to be reminded of the most obvious things. Right? That's why God repeats himself many times. And I'm like, all right, God, you already said that a hundred times. Obviously, I need to hear it a hundred times. Okay, so we're going to, it might seem a little bit obvious, but just stay with me for a little bit, right? So we're going to do some background in Nehemiah. So number one, Nehemiah recognizes the problem. Duh. Like, of course you have to recognize the problem. So Nehemiah verse, chapter 1, verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. All right, so, so remember, 90 years the people have lived there in shambles. They knew the things that they weren't the way they were supposed to be, but my guess is that they had, no, they had no idea how to fix it, how to do it, and they had no hope. Nehemiah was almost a thousand miles away. He heard about the conditions. He immediately recognized the problem and recognized that something should and could be done about it. Why did he have hope? Because he knew the one that could do something about it. He recognized, this is number two, he recognized that only God can reveal the solution. Right? So, verse four. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Right? So, there are many lessons here just in this one verse. Nehemiah wanted to fix a problem. I get it. If I were Nehemiah, I'd want to fix it too. And my very first call would be to Jeff Reynolds. He was here earlier, right? I'd be like, Jeff, I need to fix a wall. Let's go. All right? Nehemiah's very first call was to God. Difference between me and Nehemiah, right? I, I'd like to believe I would get to God immediately after calling Jeff, but, but, man, we need to go to God first. My first thought would be, man, Jeff is my man. But God, God should be the man first, right? Um, but even before praying, notice all the other things that Nehemiah did. He sat. He wept. He mourned. He fasted for some days. Man, that's hard because I'd be like, okay, God, let's, let's go. Let's build this wall. For some days he sat. He mourned. He wept. All of us could learn from Nehemiah. Obviously, we need God's wisdom and his guidance. Proverbs 16.9 reminds us that in their hearts, humans plan their course. But the Lord established their steps. Number three, he takes responsibility. So this is verse six, verses six and seven. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Responsibility. Most of you are probably thinking, you know, this world could use a little bit more responsibility. I wish people would take responsibility for their actions. I'm there with you. But here's the kicker. When it comes to our sinful nature, all of us are guilty of not taking enough responsibility. It's easy to point the finger at somebody else for taking more responsibility. But when it comes to our sinful nature... And our broken relationship with God, all of us need to be more responsible for our own individual sin, actions, and consequences. Let's hear Nehemiah's words again. I confess the sins I have committed against you. We have not obeyed your commands. 
All of us can say those words. As a church, we can say those words. We should say those words. We're guilty of those things, just like Nehemiah, his family, and that group, that remnant. You've probably heard of the Jesus film. Um, Many stories have been documented about what happened when they took this film about Jesus around to the developing world. Here's one of the stories, and most of them are very similar to this, but a a story about showing that film in a refugee camp in Mozambique. As the movie unfolds, the refugees are in awe of Jesus. And when he's arrested and beaten and crucified, they, they fall to their knees and they weep and they cry. And this lasted for a long time. So the crew, right, there's a whole crew there and the counselors, they, they know this kind of thing happens. They come out to, to talk with the people. They just stop the movie and to come out to talk to them and to pray. And, and their testimony is that the Spirit of God was so strong that as a group, the crew and the counselors and the refugees together just continued the, the crying and the weeping and the, and the, the, the um, identifying of their sins and just talking to God all together for some another half an hour. Eventually, they finish the film, and the refugees don't know the story, right? See how God redeems the story, and Jesus is crucified but resurrects, and, and there's like a cheer, right? And this is a very common story of the Jesus film. But the point is that, that all together, even the crew and the counselors, all of them, they fall to their knees in front of the God that they see as perfect, recognizing that they're not. James uses a mirror as an example and says that the Bible, the Word of God, should be like a mirror to our soul, right? We look at a mirror and we see ourselves. When we look at the Bible, we should see our soul and see what might need to be fixed. So, I've heard this illustration. I didn't create this illustration. I've heard it several times. But imagine you get all dressed up, you know, for, a, for an event. And so you're, you're dashing or beautiful. And you take one last look in the mirror to make sure everything is right. And right as you're giving yourself a smile and a wink, you notice there's a big hunk of broccoli stuck in your teeth. You're obviously going to get rid of it before you leave. Okay? Well, the Bible should be the same way. When we use the Bible to see our soul... We should be able to see the giant broccoli stuck in our teeth, and we should do something about it. It should be obvious. The broccoli is obvious in our teeth, the physical teeth. It's not always as obvious the spiritual broccoli, right, that we sometimes just overlook it or, or skip it because we don't want to deal with it, right? This is what James is telling us, right? This doesn't make any sense. We should be willing to use God's Word as a mirror to our soul. Number four, he acts. So this is chapter two now, verses four and five. Then the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the king of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Notice that he prays one more time. For those of you who have little kids or you remember this, little kids always always want one more something right one more turn one more song one more cookie one more story one more something it's always one more something but how about one more prayer right one more prayer would be nice one more time just talk to god but then here's the here's the next lesson 
But once God has spoken, it's time to act. Have you guys heard the phrase, let me get this right, paralysis by analysis? Yeah, like um, there's a time to act, right? Maybe we need to talk to God one more time, but once God has spoken, we need to act. God will absolutely, positively, without a doubt, do his part. But the question is, are we going to do ours? All right, so not only did Nehemiah put his faith into action, but man, he was bold. So this is chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. He prays. He takes responsibility. He takes action. He's bold. Here's here's what sets Nehemiah apart. He not only saw how things were, he saw how things could be. He saw through a different set of eyes. He didn't see things through his human sinful eyes. He saw things through God's eyes. He recognized that not only is God the creator, but he's the recreator. I told you you'd see that again for you youth group people. Um, Nehemiah came with the full authority of the Persian king and government behind him. As Christians, we come with the full authority of the God of heaven and earth behind us. We can proceed with full and complete confidence that God will act on our behalf. Nehemiah did that, but here's the question again, right? Are we going to act like we believe that? So all that's really good stuff, right? We ha- but we haven't even gotten to the real point of today's message yet. And that was just background to get us to working together. All right. So under working together, if you're following your notes, now this is number one. So we're definitely going to take action, but we need to do it together. Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 3, we're not going to read that. It is a long list of people doing the work. But feel free to read it um, this week, but, but that's what you'll find. All, it'll just identify all the people, the work they're doing, where they're doing it. So they started building. Verse 5, and it's everybody. Everybody builds, okay? The, the merchant, the priest the leaders, the, just the, the families, the moms, the dads, the kids, everybody builds. Verse 5 says there's one group of nobles that don't. They're the outlier. Everybody else, they go on the wall and they build. And you might remember what they did. That wall was something like two and a half miles long, 10 feet wide, and over 30 feet tall, and they rebuilt it in 52 days, Right? That's a heck of an accomplishment. So this reminds us of an important New Testament principle. Everyone, from the smallest to the tallest, from the youngest to the oldest, is responsible for the ministry of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Remember this prayer from Jesus. This is from John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. 
May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Right? This is the unity of working together. And this kind of unity can only happen by God's grace. A few weeks ago, Pastor, this is number two. A few weeks ago, Pastor Ed used the phrase, bloom where you are planted. So I thought I would use it again. Chapter three described how the people teamed up. They worked in sections near where they lived and worked. Right. So spread the work around and everybody was doing their part. God has placed each of us strategically where he wants us to be. Your neighborhood, your office, your home, right, your community events, whatever that might be, God has strategically placed you there. If any of you got any of you like strategic board games, for example, Risk, I really like Risk, but man, I really struggle with where should I put my pieces, right? I spent paralysis by analysis. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. God doesn't struggle with that. He puts you strategically where he wants you to be. The word, um, let's see, uh, John fifteen sixteen. this is Jesus again. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, my Father will give you. So that word translated appointed literally means strategically placed them. Right? God strategically has placed us. So there's also something inferred here. Notice that if I'm strategically placed and all of you are strategically placed here, that means not only were we placed here, but we were placed with each other, right? So not just in this place, but with these people. God has strategically placed us together as a group of believers. So maybe next week at howdy time, we should greet each other with God has placed us here together, right? So remind me of that, okay? All right, this leads us to number three. I'm sort of getting to the point of, of the, the, today's message and then part two, which will be coming. Intergenerational ministry has always been part of God's plan. A little league coach suddenly runs out onto the field, wants to talk to one of his little kids who just got thrown out at first. He says to him, do you understand what cooperation is, what a team is? The little kid's a little bit confused and looks at him and just kind of shakes his head. Do you understand that it ma- what matters most is that we play together as a team? Yes, sir. I understand. Do you understand that no matter what happens, you have to honor your teammates, right? No yelling at the referee because he called you out and you think you're safe. Yes, sir. I understand. The coach looked at him and said, good. Now, can you go explain that to your father, please? So, God wants us to be in ministry together, to worship together, right? From the smallest to the biggest, from the youngest to the oldest. And he expects us to learn from each other. And not just the little ones learning from the big ones, but us big ones learning from the little ones too. So here's some quick examples from the Old Testament. This is when Moses addressed Israel for the last time. And this comes from Deuteronomy 29. 
All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel, together with your children and your wives, and the foreigners living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water. You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath. Everyone, all ages, even people that weren't part of the tribe, together in the presence of the Lord for something as important as entering into a covenant with the Lord God Almighty. Back to Nehemiah. So we, we talked a little bit about verses 1, 2, and 3. This is, verse tw- this is chapter 12. And this is a dedic- the wall gets rebuilt in 52 days, right? So this is a dedication of the wall and a praise celebratory worship service. Guess who was involved in the celebration? Right? Everybody. So this is verse 43. And on the, that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. In the book of Psalms, there are many references to the passing of faith from one generation to another. An example is from Psalm 78. This is verses 4 through 8. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. God cares about intergenerational ministry. Because of my position, I probably get to be a part of and witness that kind of intergenerational thing happening maybe more than anybody here because I get to work with all the groups in the church. I can recall all kinds of mentoring relationships, service projects and missions projects where multiple generations were involved, all kinds of teaching where, right, and not just an older generation teaching a younger, but also the flip, and just friendships between generations. I mean, in my own life, I've been a part of it, and I've got to witness it. So we want to encourage more intergenerational relationships and ministry teamwork right here at Hanover Friends. So if we want to encourage that, then shouldn't we be giving you more opportunities to do it? And the answer is a resounding yes. So I have a bit of a tease to share with you. So this is only part one of a two-part series on intergenerational ministry. The second part will be on, won't be next week. It will be on Sunday, February 19th. Today's message was a view from the wall. That message will be a view from heaven on intergenerational ministry. On that day, we'll also be introducing a new ministry. And this will be a real opportunity for intergenerational ministry. If we're going to talk about it, we should do it, right? So we're going to give you this opportunity. Also on that day, so usually our potluck lunch after service is on the second Sunday of the month. In February, it's going to be on the third Sunday. It's going to be on that, that Sunday, February 19th. And that's, 
that potluck will be a little bit different. It's going to be, we're going to call it cross-cultural cuisine. All right? You can thank Laura for that name. Um, cross-cultural So what I would like you to do is, when you're preparing whatever you're going to bring, if you could put a cross-cultural twist on it, so we can kind of celebrate cross-cultural things that day. So there's all the teases you get. February 19th, we'll continue this message, and we will introduce... another opportunity for us to really be a part of intergenerational ministry. All right, let's pray. Father God, what what better way to pray now than Jesus' own words? May we be one, just as Jesus is one with you. May we be in complete unity with one another as a testimony to your power and goodness so the world will see you through us and know that you love them. And Lord, I pray that we would look for opportunities to, uh, to have relationship with, to serve with, to be ministry with people of another generation. We have many gifts to offer each other, and we have many things to learn from each other. So Lord, knowing that it was important to you, I pray that it would be important to us. So guide us and lead us and help us to honor you with intergenerational ministry. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us? Yeah. 